All right, welcome back to the PCS podcast. Uh, I am Drew, I am host, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the Lil France regional results. We are going to have a little discussion about rogue decks and how they fit into this format and how one could approach that situation. We're going to talk about the uh, world's qualifications, North America versus the rest of the world, and how Pokemon can really justify how point distribution works for qualifying for worlds and then we're going to wrap it up with a quick discussion about lugia coming in out of a uh, silver tempest and how it's going to squeeze its way into our meta uh with me today is justin also known as pokebruce what's going on man how was your week oh man it uh was really really good actually um I was very busy this weekend. I had a whole list of uh, honeydews that I got done, and then um, ended up competing in my first local, a uh, um, the team challenge qualifier. Uh, got knocked out on the finals by, of course, Mew Vmax. So didn't make it on the first round, but uh, got three more to go. So we'll uh, hopefully hopefully get one of those wins here. Um, how was your weekend? It's good. Um... I watched the Halo World Championships and a little bit of the Lil Regionals as well. Um, I did win a tourney on Saturday with a kind of unorthodox um, Melmetal VMAX Colrus 4 Hyper Potion deck. Uh, I was kind of testing the water because I'm a full believer in Gudra. I really do think that it is a good deck, but I'm wondering if maybe just decks that can utilize 4 Double Turbo Energy four hyper potion and four chorus is actually just good and i I actually really think that just chorus hyper potion dte makes a deck good and i'm wondering what other skeletons i can kind of apply that same engine to and maybe it'll see similar results to things like gudra i'm not super confident but one of my teammates kind of brought it to my attention that maybe gardevoir vmax would be a really good plug for something like that because it has the auto 80 healing built into its attack so uh kind of testing the water there just you know i have a little bit of time between now and san diego which is my next regional so gotta leave no stone unturned yeah those yeah the double turbo hyper potion combo especially combined with colorus is just it's really good honestly and i could see it working with a lot of stuff other than gudra even though you know we're we're both big gudra fans but yeah that's that's actually really cool to see the uh, melmetal v max actually take a take a win honestly that's really cool yeah, no, I, I definitely didn't expect to see any results from it other than to whether prove my theory right or wrong. And it's still a little bit up in the air because Melmetal's kind of a tanky attacker, has the potential to hit 280. Uh, not meta relevant by any means, but yeah, it was kind of neat to see. Other than that, uh, watching the Halo World Championships, Optic 1, Optic is my favorite Halo squad, so it was really, really cool to see that. Uh, but you guys aren't here to listen to Halo. You guys are here to talk about the Pokemon TCG and the results from the Little France Regional. There were only 573 Masters in this Regional. And I feel like the deck variety just wasn't very wide. And maybe that has to do with attendance. Or maybe it's just because there were 500 really good players here who decided to bring something super meta relevant. And uh, what ended up taking the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, whenever you you're competing for these points and stuff like that, like that, and especially all these numbers, uh, you know, being a little bit smaller, you're probably going to get a little more streamlined of your deck variety and stuff like that. But uh, with the winner, we have Fabio Bat. I'm going to butcher this last name, Batistella um, with Mew Vmax, which uh, we've talked about before, is just a super strong deck. Um, like I mentioned, it's what literally knocked me out of my final round. Um, and it is the double turbo build with no Meloettas and just continuing to show how strong this, this archetype really is. Yeah, I tend to agree. And it's playing a wide variety of stadiums, and they are definitely necessary stadiums in the form of two Lost City, one Path to the Peak, and one Pokestop. Uh, but Mew being this dominant is just a little bit sketchy. But something I want to talk about in this list, uh, the return of Echoing Horn which a lot of people were not necessarily super keen on, but I could see with the rise and things like Arceus Gudra, it would be very, very necessary to run an Echoing Horn to take that easy two-prize knockout, uh, putting anything like an Arceus, a Palkia, um, Gudra, V, what have you, something that's not uh, too far out of the threshold 
of what Mew can hit without overextending themselves with uh, double turbo energy so that they can kind of conserve those resources for a larger knockout later. Um, but seeing Echoing Horn definitely makes me a little nervous, but there's also another card in here that I want to talk about, and that's Tool Jammer. Uh, how would you see Tool Jammer being applied in a Mew deck in this meta we have right now? So Tool Jammer, um, I mean, can be really good for all the things like big parasols. Uh, I mean, granted, in this this list specifically, the only thing you'd have to really worry about a big parasol for, for is the glistening droplets. Um, but I mean, other than that, in this specific matchup, I'm having a hard time personally trying to figure out what that's for other than maybe protecting yourself from like something with a choice belt um, or even getting through something with a big charm. Um, that way you don't have to worry about the tool scrapper aspect and uh, you just, you know, you have the tool jammer attached. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And I think that tool jammer definitely makes a lot of sense. Being 310 HP and already limiting your damage output with double turbo energy, it kind of balances out the the matchup. So you're you're relatively two shotting some things and one shotting most things that haven't evolved yet. But V stars are just a little harder to get to, and digging through your deck to get two tablets every single time you need to hit something around 280. And then watching things like Arceus and Kyurem all apply large HP numbers with things like Big Charm or just naturally having 330 HP. It's nice to kind of have that to combat it, but it came up huge in the final because it does limit Blissey's ability to use uh, Cape of Toughness, which increases its HP by 50. So it ended up being super useful if you attach it to Mu VMAX and... Um, an opponent's Giratina plus belt um, is trying to take a KO. It's going to be a lot harder uh, for them to approach that threshold. So super sick to see Tooljammer kind of find its way back in. The Echoing Horn definitely makes me a little nervous. And the last thing I want to talk about is the absence of any of these like upper echelon Mew decks uh, of using the Pokemon Catcher. Like I feel like we kind of blinked and all of a sudden it was out of Mew decks. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the Pokemon Catcher. I mean, just adding another flip card to it. Yes, it can be helpful, but at the same time, I feel like sometimes that could just be a dead card, especially with this DTE build. It's kind of just really going for long term consistency versus you know that really aggressive. Hey, if I don't have to use my boss for this turn, that means I can get an Elsa Sparkle instead. Um, so I just don't think in this build specifically that it necessarily needs it. Um, but then again, I could be wrong. It could just be one of those things, the flavor of the week. Um, I mean, how many times have we seen the Rotom phones go in and out of the list? How many times have we seen, like I mentioned, the Echoing Horn and stuff like that? So there may be a world where we do see that come back in, but um, I honestly don't think in the DTE build it's necessarily like a necessity. It's something that if you can yeah. find the room for it, go for it. But I don't think it's going to be the end of the world if you don't uh, don't put those in there. Right. No, and I, I tend to agree. And the only reason I bring that to light is because it's only running one boss's orders. Obviously, the new Mew build runs Palpad, but at best you get to utilize boss twice. So you're kind of relying on the access to things like Crosswitcher. And just being able to have access to things like the tablets to take the knockout on whatever's in the active. So it doesn't appear to be that aggressive, but at the end of the day, it's still Mew VMAXing. It just hits perfect numbers because of all of its additives. Yeah, exactly. The cross switchers are the, the big aspect. You are also playing that Silene in there, so you can technically loop back the pal pad and the boss, so you can effectively use it multiple times if you really wanted to. Um, I, I mean, and it is a very viable strategy. Um, that was actually one of the plays that my uh, opponent this past weekend used. He Silene, or he Ultra Balled a boss away and then Silene back the boss um, just to thin more cards out of his hand and things like that. So, But yeah, the cross switchers are definitely something that they're relying a lot more heavily on as, more, as far as a um, more consistent um, as well as when Mew attacks with that Genesex attack, it has to reset anyways, so a lot of times they'll be switching that to the bench and then cross-switching it back up so it helps reset that attack, um, as well as getting the bossing effect. 
yeah no that's a super good observation and i and i really do like that and the silene ended up being the game winning card uh for fabio and we'll go ahead and talk about the second place blissey v featuring miltank deck that ended up making its way all the way to the finals um <laughs> was one thing i want to point out is watching this cat on stream um their name is jamie uh, they don't have a limitless page or anything like that. They have no previous high placings at any Pokemon event, at least that's been through um, like Pokemon regulated stuff that allows them to have championship points and so on and so forth. Uh, they ended up playing Blissey. They landed on a list that ran two Sharon's Care, three Boss, four Path to the Peak, four Cape of Toughness. Um, and I want to say it's the, um, the Yell Towel if you will, the one that heals 50 from both active Pokemon. Yep, Team Yeltal. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this list seems pretty good. I don't think it got a very favorable matchup playing against Mew because it has so many switch outs, because this list played Tool Jammer. Um, it just makes it a little bit difficult for a list like this to survive. Obviously, the mill tanks aren't going to do anything with a Tool Jammer Mew that can use Max Miracle on back-to-back -back turns. Um to just shred through uh anything with 130 hp or less yeah exactly uh, that's that shred <laughs> is dumb with uh, added a tool jammer to it absolutely and in game three in the finals the one pokestop that was played in the mew deck was placed in the field and on two or three back-to-back -back turns jamie decided to use pokestop to try to get an advantageous position to draw into the things that they need one thing I want to point out in this list is it runs four Hyper Potion, four Yell Towel, one single Trekking Shoe, and three Quick Ball plus four Cape. Those are all of the items you could have potentially pulled off that Pokestop. Realistically, none of them would help you against Mew other than Cape. And in those specific instances, Jamie had already placed those Capes on the Blissies uh, or... I think it was one mill tank at one point that had one just to kind of stave off a knockout or burn a power tablet from the opponent. And it did nothing for them. <laughs> it absolutely robbed them. It put things like Avery, Sharon's Care, Path to the Peak right into the discard pile because you can only pull item cards off of that Pokestop. And I was beside myself. And it's not because I'm saying, oh, what a rookie. Why are they playing it? Obviously drawing into maybe an extra quick ball or uh, the trekking shoe to potentially get into that next item you need is solid. But you're not running a high enough count of items that are going to sway the game one way or another to justify playing that stop. Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, I was so busy this weekend I actually didn't get to watch any of the games. Um, but from just my kind of player experience the only reason i could see him doing something like that and i don't know the situation specifically i have to go back and watch um with blissey specifically though that card takes energies from the discard pile and attaches themselves so my only thought would be that maybe they were hoping to get more energies in the discard pile to start stacking up a blissey a little bit faster um granted like i said i don't know the scenario whether there was already enough on the Blissey or they weren't attacking with Blisseys or what the issue was. But from my from my I like outside perspective, that's what I could see maybe that uh they were going for is trying to get more energies there to be able to ramp up a Blissey even faster once they start doing attacks. Um but in my also experience, um I just I'm not a fan of Pokestop. Anytime my opponent plays it down I just ignore it. Um, I've I've been burned by a Pokestop too many times, and obviously, um, from what you're saying, this happened to uh, Jamie as well. Um, but I can see in this specific matchup where that could potentially um, help them, as well as if they did happen to hit a Hyper Potion or they did happen to hit the Quick Ball or just something, um, it could help that much more. But it does not sound like it worked out for them too well. No, definitely didn't. And I and I understand they were trying to freeze Mew and get the you know, get a little bit deeper into the deck to have access to things like Pats of the Peak to stop the draw from Genesect and so on and so forth. But I I can't in my mind like re realistically find an a line of play where one card, even one card off of the Pokestop would have changed how that worked for Jamie. 
but I will give Jamie a lot of credit. They were a very, very fun opponent to watch on stream. They were incredibly animated with their expressions and understanding the, like, not not really understanding, but just conveying the gameplay to everybody else. Like, they were slapping the table every time that they used the Pokestop. <laughs> uh, the, you could see their expression because the camera was on their face, and they'd throw their hands up, they'd roll their eyes. And <laughs> you'd see them draw off the top of their deck and they just roll their head backwards. And you knew that they were like stressed out because they were in, you know, obviously a top two, you know, winner of this wins little regional type of deal. And I I really, really enjoyed watching them on stream. Uh, I, I It sucks that they had to lose to be that animated. But at the end of the day, you know, you were playing the game that you love at the highest level with what I'd say is arguably the most rogue successful deck, successful rogue deck, I suppose is the correct terminology in the format right now. And they made a great meta call until they hit Mew. So it's sick to see them have this success. And I really did enjoy watching them on stream. Yeah. Those are the type of opponents that we all want to play against, right? It's like, even, even if they're losing, they're still having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. And I'm sure for Jamie, this was probably just an awesome experience to make it this far. Um, with, like you said, no previous, uh, Pokemon, like, ex- or not, I don't want to say experience, it's the wrong word, but um, tops or anything like that, like big time finishes that at least we know of, um, which is also kind of hope for all of us that it shows, like, hey, if someone can do it, I mean, it could be you next, you know? It's, it's really cool. Absolutely. I, I tend to agree. And then the last thing I want to talk about is that seeing three lucky energy in this deck seems very reminiscent of previous Blissey decks. There are cards in this list that are definitely um, a little bit more updated. Obviously, the Double Turbo Energy, the Sharon's Care, so on and so forth. But we have access to Gift Energy now, which allows you to draw until you have seven cards in your hand if you're knocked out. And they were running three Lucky Energy, and if the Pokemon this card is attached to is an active spot and is damaged by an attack, you draw a card. Do you think that there's a balance of one or the other you could potentially use or is the fear of decking out preventing you from wanting to play gift energy this is a hard one um so personally i like the lucky energy better than the gift energy just because in the few game experience that i have with blissey itself um you tend to build up really large hands really fast um and you, I mean, you kind of hold on to those hands for the most part um, throughout most of the game because you don't see a lot of Marnies in, in play right now. Um, with Gift Energy, if that is attached in your hand, seven or greater cards, it literally does nothing for you. Whereas Lucky Energy, you could have a card, a hand of 15 cards, and you still get to draw an extra card uh, if you take damage. Um, so, in that aspect, it's great. Although, the obverse side of that is the. The fact is, if it's attached, you might also deck yourself out if you're getting hit so many times. Um, I've experienced this playing against someone playing Blissey who um, I wasn't doing a lot of damage to them, but I just kept milling them cards because they made the mistake of attaching those energies back from their discard pile to the Blissey. Which, granted, you do have that option, but if you do make that mistake and they're stuck there, you know, it's kind of... It it can be very um, touchy, so... There could be a world where you find a blend of maybe Lucky and Gift Energy, and in each scenario, you can kind of attach as you need from your discard pile the specifics. But realistically, um, I I just think Lucky Energy might be the better call because at the end of the day, even if you get Marnie and you have three Lucky Energy attached, you're still building your hand up to seven versus Gift Energy, you're building up to seven anyways. And so it's just kind of like that larger hand, better odds, I guess scenario with lucky energy versus the gift energy for sure and i and i'm thinking like maybe along the lines of like one gift energy two lucky energy or you start cutting into something like double turbo energy which at the end of the day helps you with damage output but also includes a damage reduction uh on it itself so i'm not a big blissey player i was actually very excited to see blissey lose because (laughs) i really don't like playing against that deck uh (laughs) but uh, at the end of the day, obviously, there's there's something to be discussed in terms of gift energy, especially with uh, Jamie bricking as hard as they were, consistently having hand sizes that were below that 15 card limit that we were talking about. Having a gift energy that you could part ways with 
through Greninja to draw a little bit of cards. If you don't get what you need off of that, attack with Blissey, slap the gift energy on there, get yourself back into a position where you can establish a board state. I think one of them seems reasonable in that aspect, but I tend to agree with yours. If you're not getting knocked out, Lucky Energy allows you to draw cards whether or not you're KO'd or not. Yep, so. exactly. And there wasn't a tremendous amount of variety at this smaller regional that we had this season, but there was a really cool tech card inside of James Cox's Mewtwo V Union Mill Tank control deck, and that was Chinchu, or Chinchow, or however you say it. It's a basic lightning single prize Pokemon for one lightning energy. You switch your opponent's active Pokemon with one of their bench Pokemon. Uh... I would imagine it in a control deck being very useful to stick something with a, a high retreat cost in the active. Uh, it doesn't do really any energy. Uh, it doesn't really do any damage, but it's it's a neat feature, and you're running four speed lightning energy to draw as well as attack with things like Morpeko with the Torment attack that allows you to choose one of your opponent's attacks and stop them from using it. It seems like it's okay. You know, just as an additional lightning attacker and the speed energy is there for you to use it. Yeah, I I don't know how I feel about that inclusion either. Um, like you said, just with the switch, I mean, I could see where, say, you've milled out enough for their energies or things like that. Um, what better way to just stall someone out than bring something up they can't retreat? Um, but... I I also think there might be better options out there versus putting, you know, this one prize weak Pokemon that doesn't really do anything out there. Granted, it can't, like you said, can make use of the speed energy, but um, I also have not ever even touched this deck, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, I could definitely see where something like Morpeko um, would be a lot better of a Pokemon to bring in because you can just go, hey, I know you're going to use this attack, so no, you can't use it anymore. Um but, hey, it's uh, interesting text, and James Cox is a great player, so um, I can't fault them. Yeah, I've, I was going to say, like, I feel like I talk about James Cox a lot, um, just uh, between Pokedads and here and, you know, discussing meta results with uh, my friends and stuff like that. Um, they, This is the first time I've seen them dabble in something along the lines of control, and they placed pretty well. I want to say it was like top 60, something like that. And that's substantial. So really cool to see a deck like this have some sort of an impact in the field, which we're going to transition into and talk about here in a second. Um, the Lil Regionals top 16 consisted of one Mew in top eight, uh, one in 14th place. You had... Two Giratina Comfies, two Inteleon Palkias, obviously one Blissey Milting, and then you had a Kiram Palkia. Did we have enough variety along the lines of something like this, or does it appear that we're heading towards a more stale meta, or was it just a very consolidated um, regional that had a lot of good players playing good decks? I'm the worst person to ask this because everyone always <laughs> says the meta gets stale and stuff like that, and I never, I, I don't ever think it gets stale because I can just, I'll pick up a different deck and change it up. Um, so some people might consider this kind of streamlining and sticking to a handful of decks and things like that, and in a sense that is true, but I definitely do think we're in a more diverse meta than we've been in in a very, very long time. Um, yeah, we see a lot of these decks that are in the top spots and everything like that. And there's not a crazy amount of diversity, but I think these decks are obviously very strong and anyone, including a Blissey Mill Tank, can really sneak in there at any point and take that top spot. Um, but I just think some people have seen certain decks have streamlined a little bit more, more tried and true, where some of these other decks are kind of still being figured out, but can still pop in there. I mean, this past couple regionals before Lil, we saw um, Zorark, uh, v-star just coming out of nowhere and you know all over the field and starting to pop up here we don't really see it at all so i think it's kind of one of those things where it's um people see previous metagames and they start going well what's going to be a better matchup for this this uh event um kind of like we've talked about in the past metagaming the metagame 
Um, and so some of these people maybe stumble upon the same ideas of, hey, this is what did well last time, so let's all play this this time. And so it might kind of come across as the meta streamlining too much, but I really do think there is a very wide variety in general of decks to choose from that can realistically hold their own. I mean, we don't see any Hisui and Gudra here whatsoever in the top 16, yet it won the entire regionals. Um, Reggie's, for instance, we don't see a single Reggie in the top 16, and there was four in the top eight at the last regional. So um, it just kind of shows you it changes um, all the time and really anything. And, and just realistically, some people might just go, hey, I think this is going to be better medical and everyone is in that same mindset and it just happens to be oh that half the field is the same deck but doesn't mean that it's um a, everyone's only going to play that deck from that point forward yeah i i'm with you i really do like this meta and i think that uh with silver, silver tempest on the horizon it appears that we're in a good spot where it might get a little more diverse it might get a little better it might bring a lot of things that weren't very good the past two sets back into the format, but that'll be a discussion for later. But what I want to talk about, seeing Blissey take a top two finish, you know, going all the way to the finals, what do you consider a rogue deck? Like, other than Blissey, what, what rogue deck could you see in a format like this right now? Oh, well, with that, we've got to kind of really determine what's like rogue actually is um to some people blissey miltank's not really a rogue deck it's just that annoying deck that you play against every once in a while um i think mewtwo control uh is kind of a is a rogue deck it's it's a a known deck but you don't really see it right now um it's hard to say rogue uh, rogue has so many different meanings especially when it comes to pokemon um and realistically, like it's kind of something that is not really known or known to be countered against. Um, Blissey is known. People don't really think to counter against it because it's not played a lot. But I mean, uh, I don't. I, it's I honestly don't even know. There's so much variety in this format that I really think someone can make something crazy and it do well, and that would be considered rogue. Until obviously it's popular and everyone wants to try and then it's not rogue anymore so it's kind of just it's it's weird to think of rogue I'd, like i think right now if you were to go in with single strike urshifu that would be considered rogue even though six yeah. months ago it was everywhere that's all you played against because it hits such big numbers and and things like actually probably even longer than six months ago but i mean you know that would be considered rogue right now, whereas in the past it wasn't. So it's it's kind of a weird tumbleweed of you know it's rogue, then all of a sudden everyone knows about it and it gets played like crazy, and it's not rogue anymore. So something else becomes rogue, and yada 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 yada. <laughs> yeah, no, I get. It. I think in a meta like this, it's kind of harder to be the rogue deck because. With new engines like Arceus, the Comfy Chorus engine, uh, you know, anything realistically being able to utilize uh, the Celebrations, Mew, uh, and Scoop Up engine. Like, you can realistically make a lot of decks work because there's so many additives to this format that can bring something back to life. And I would even consider, like, Meloetta in Mew making that more of a rogue deck because it's not being played right now but there's you know it's one tech card away from being the next spicy list because it's not being played it sneaks up on you and i think that's what makes a deck rogue is the ability to be sneaky to be the deck that no one tested against coming into a format or coming into a regional and you know i'm excited about it i think right now the you know, Aegislash V and VMAX are wildly unplayed, but have great numbers to hit against things like Gudra. They hit great numbers against things like um, Kurum, obviously, because of weakness. Uh, Aegislash V being able to shred through anything for 130 is, you know, it makes it a very diverse card in this instance. We did see it have a little bit of a show in the Salt Lake City um, format, but it wasn't played in mass amounts, which I would consider rogue. Um, 
the player that made day two or made, made top 256 with Eternatus went on stream and played that deck. Um, I would very much so consider that a rogue deck right now, but it hits the good numbers. No one's practicing against it. Uh, even Duraludon right now could sneak up and can be considered a rogue deck because it's not being, it's not on anybody's radar unless they are determining to play it as the rogue player. Um, and the reason why I'm asking this question is because a listener by the name of Kevin reached out on Instagram and they were kind of wondering, you know, what it takes to be the rogue player and how you can look at a metagame like what we have here in Lil. And what do you see like, something common amongst all these decks that could be the rogue play? And I'm not asking you to pick that card to build that deck for them, but like, what would you look at at all these other decks and try to find a common denominator to build around so i was actually gonna just real quick mention actually the the eternatus because i remember last week you said you had played against one um that was something the rogue but it's uh, i will say um i don't know what would be that one breakout card um to make something rogue right now um because i think the big issue is we're in such a diverse card pool um, in such a large card pool that so much stuff gets caught in the crosshairs of what's already in these meta decks that it just will automatically make that not work. And we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but things like Eternatus gets caught in the crosshairs of Path to the Peak, gets caught in the crosshairs of Avery. Um, you know, if you want to make a single prize rogue deck, like you were saying with the Mewshoes engine, well, we have Empoleon, or, you know, or somewhat we're seeing double empoleons right now where it's like okay you can't even escape rope around that and shutting off these one prize abilities and things like that um so it, i i really do think it's because we have such a large card pool that it should be a good time for rogue things but there's so many good powerful cards that a lot of these potential rogue opportunities are just caught in the crosshairs of um of these meta decks i mean and with there being so, such a diverse um, pool of meta decks, like we kind of talked about, you're already having to um, build your meta deck around such a wide variety of other meta decks that it's kind of like I said, it, it's you've got the tool jammers in there, you've got the lost vacuums, we, you've got the path of the peaks, you've got so much stuff that's just already going to shut off these other things that it's just. It's kind of a hard time for Rogue, and I think that someone like, I mean, if you're very interested in Rogue, keep your eyes on someone like Sander, um, Mies, uh, the guys that created the um, Mewtwo V-Union deck that's like, you know, those cards have been around for a while, and all of a sudden they made it work. Those are the guys that are going to be able to break that, because they just have, their minds just work differently, if we're being honest. Um, but yeah, I, I, my personal opinion, I feel like Rogue is kind of um, in a tough spot right now, because of the crosshairs of everything else. I tend to agree, and if it, if I was to build something rogue, you know, other than Melmetal Vmax, um, <laughs> it would uh, it probably consist of something along the lines of Galarian Weezing. Like I, I I'm not saying that as like specifically that's going to win the next for, like tournament format, whatever. I think it's wildly underplayed right now. I think there's a lot of decks that capitalize on going first and second that can't really punish you for playing Coughings with Ascension or having the ability to evolve Dark and Dark. You know, with so much rope in the format right now, running something like a 3-3 three, three or a 2-2 two, two line of Galarian Weezing could shut these Lost Boxes down heavily and give them little to no access to really establish, you know, a board state. Obviously, getting into things like Calrus, um, being able to draw out and potentially find a line of play, uh, it, it only puts X amount of cards in the Lost Zone, so Sableye becomes less and less of a threat as the game goes longer and you start taking prizes and forcing them out of their abilities. Uh, and then things like Bikavolt sneaking up, hitting for weakness against things like Cramorant and preventing these lost box decks to, from using their items. I'd consider that like a very strong rogue play. Um, obviously not seeing a tremendous amount of success because Mew VMAX just won the whole thing. But if you're really interested in rogue decks, just see what the common denominator with all these decks are in terms of abilities like I had mentioned, Galarian Weezing seeing not a lot of play but potentially being able to capitalize on all 16 of these top decks would be a great, great call. So um, if, you, if you're wanting to play something side meta, definitely look into something that all these top decks have, but make sure you're informed on their lines of play. 
obviously if you depend on one Galarian Weezing to help you set up something on the board like Eternatus, all these decks play like three rope. So <laughs> please, please be careful and be, be vigilant about how you go about teching in a rogue fashion for the meta. Couldn't have said it better. And then we're... Yeah, hey, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, so Kevin, I hope that answered your question. And then I have another quick topic. We'll, we'll, we'll brush this over pretty quickly. Uh, the World Championship Qualifications for 2023. Uh, I've gone over this on the Pokedads a little bit, but one thing I wanted to bring to you know our listeners' attention and talk to you about, Justin, is U.S. and Canada, North America, if you will, needing 500 points as a master to qualify for worlds and this isn't your day two invite or anything like that this is just to get into worlds you need a 500 points and in europe you need 350 latin america you need 250 oceania 250 middle east south africa 250 right now our number one player in the u.s azul gg has 310 championship points he is super duper close to getting his invite. Um, Cal Connor, uh, I want to say that's Drew Kennett right below him, Grant Manley, yeah. Jake Santiago. These are all really, really good players. If you're on Twitter, you see these guys' names pop up a lot. Uh, but they don't have their invite yet, and they're four, maybe maybe five. I, I would say like average three or four events into this season. And then you look at Europe, and you've got Owen Cameraman and Tord Reklev, who already have their world invite at 330 and 310 points. In their own respective right, Tord and Owen are very, very good. And they have traveled to North American events to gather these points, where the trip hasn't really been made for uh, players like Azul and Cal Connor. So this is good for the competitive scene, at least in North America, that we have such a high point threshold. Or does it need to be balanced just a little bit? We've actually seen uh, this issue uh, in previous years um, where the threshold was set and it was kind of unachievable. Um, and so they actually went back and changed the points um, throughout the middle of the season. So that's something that I'm kind of hopeful for because we're seeing these just insane numbers of players at uh i mean every it seems like every u.s regional um except for slc seems to break the previous record of how many players how many i mean pre-pandemic if you would have told me a thousand person regional i would have been like are you absolutely insane that's that's madness and now it seems like every single u.s one so with that you're kind of competing against more and more players yet your point threshold is staying exactly the same um, and so I just think that's making it way too hard for the average player right now to to get those points, at least in the U.S. I mean, we see it in Europe. There's less people attending these events, and there are technically less events, but we're already seeing two, at least two people so far have gotten their world's invite, whereas um, Azul, Cal, Drew Kennett, they're literally going to every single event that we've had in the U.S., and they're still hundreds of points away from the entrance the the to get in their uh their invite and i mean yeah we still have quite a bit of season to go our leagues cups challenges haven't started back up which we'll be able to get more points from that but i really do think that our points threshold at least here in the u.s um is a little skewed and i don't i don't necessarily mean that as far as um what we have to get to get our invite but maybe the payout for the amount of um points wise as far as you're placing in a regional. Um, the the points can be good when you win, but it's still even that. I think I've I've heard I listen to pretty much all the Pokemon podcasts, and this has been a hot topic issue for a lot of people for quite a while. And someone did the math, and it's like you have to place top sixteen at X amount of regionals or better to get your world invite. I think it was like six different regionals. There might have been more. I can't. I don't know the math off the top of my head, but it's like. For the average player, that's not obtainable. And this is kind of, I guess, yes, it, it's making it to where like the pros and the, the elites that can travel to all events have a better opportunity because they're going to go to all these events, whereas someone like you and I can only go to so many events. But it also kind of makes it a little unachievable for the average person like you and I who can't afford to drop everything and 
fly across the country to go play these events and stuff. So I do think our, our points threshold in the U.S. is a little skewed, and the correct way to fix that, I'm not sure. Um, I'd like to pick your brain on what you think might be like kind of a, a good way to fix that. So the, the, what, what brought this conversation to light is seeing a tweet from somebody in Europe saying, okay, cool, Owen and Tord qualified for Worlds. And I did the old look at the, the watch and wonder what, you know, how early into the season we are and seeing Worlds invited players already. Like Tord won Peoria, which is super duper sick. Like if you win, obviously you, you deserve that huge jump to get up into, you know, that that conversation. But being 350 points versus 500 in US and Canada when and I'm not saying like, oh yeah, well like the European players need to compete at the same level that we do because like you said they have less events, but I'm wondering if maybe 350 is just a little low. Um I can't really take in consideration the price of flights from Europe to US. Um Maybe it's cheaper for them to travel. Maybe it's cheaper for us to travel. But I don't really feel like there's a level playing field between, you know, players who qualified after going to three to four events versus players who, you know, have gone to every U.S. event and are still fighting for those finishes. Um, but it's it seems like maybe bumping up the Europe... Oceania, eh, maybe not Oceania because they have so few events, uh, but Latin America up maybe to 450, maybe to like 400 on the nose would seem a little better. I And I'm not I'm not trying to qualify for Worlds. I'm not saying like, oh, well, it's unfair. Like they're going to bump me out of a an open spot that I need because I'm obviously not competing with European players. But looking at the data on paper, I just don't understand it. I, I need more clarification on you know, Pokemon's behalf, you know, explaining why this place, this region gets this, this region gets this, and this region gets this. Yeah, I think that's really based on the, um, the, like I said, the amount of events that happen and like the, I think they do some kind of really vague calculation on how many players they expect in each area and stuff like that. But I mean, I said, when we're seeing record number of people turn out and you're having to you know, fight against a thousand other play, eleven hundred other players to potentially get points. I mean, it like I said, unless you're going to every single event right now, it's just it's impossible. And then, like I said, cups and challenges still have yet to come back. But with the fact that we're only going to come back with half a season to potentially even get those, I this year I I had originally planned to make my like hardcore run for my world's invite. Um, granted things change with having a kid and stuff like that so not starting until 2023 kind of put me on the back burner but the moment they announced that league cups and challenges weren't happening until over halfway through the season even that kind of made me like well i don't know if that's achievable because i just can't drop the money to go to every single event i mean i could but the wife probably wouldn't be happy um you know especially having a kid too but it's like this literally i feel like is more geared towards the people um, and I, I tread lightly on the term of saying it, but almost like that pay to play, um, scenario where if you've got the money and the time to go to events, you have a good chance at your world invite and obviously being a good player. But if you don't, well, I, sorry, you can't make it. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to get to worlds this year. If you, you don't have the time and money to fly across the country once to twice every month, um, and and compete in these events. So, yeah, I, it it does kind of it's it sucks that our point threshold is so high compared to other areas, but it is based on the amount of events. I just think there needs to be some adjustments for point values of earning those points um, at those large large events of a thousand eleven hundred. You know, soon we might even be saying seeing twelve thirteen hundred person events. Yeah, I can't even imagine what NAIC is going to look like this year, especially with how successful that event was run last year, at least on paper. And then the hype of Worlds, I would imagine NAIC, and if it's at a different location this year, being you know a 1,200 master event, which would be pretty bonkers. Um, 
but I don't have a lot of complaints. I just, maybe I'm looking for more clarification and more um, direct results as to why the threshold is so high for us for a player to finish at 256, walk away with 30 points or go win a league cup for not spending $60, $70 entry and get the same amount of points. Like you win five games, you get 30 points for $70 after making a trip to this large event. It, it seems like something needs to change there, the way that that math adds up. Oh, yeah, I harped on that last episode enough where I can <laughs> spend a whole weekend and a ton of money or I can spend half a day and walk away with stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like beating a dead horse, but it's, um, you know, maybe this will balance out. But I do, I do think come 2023, there's a lot of people that are in my same situation who aren't starting until 2023 we're going to see these insane events and it's just going to make it even harder to uh, get more points. Yeah. Either that or Pokemon partner with uh, other people like dragon shield so they can in like not internationally, but at a regional level do medium size events, you know, hundred championship point finishes and stuff like that. Oh, I, like, I would love I them like... to bring stuff like that back, like doing a cup for day two for people who didn't, make it you know and at the you know, day two of the regional they can actually earn some points that way yeah. they used to actually do stuff like that um i don't know i haven't heard of them doing anything like that since we've been back from covid but pre-covid they would do stuff like that where they would run like one large cup um for the day mm-hmm. two people who flew in and have you know were hanging out for the day because they didn't know they were going to make day two but um i think that'd be really cool yeah. for them to bring stuff like that back yeah or bring back uh state and city championships too i think that would be helpful as well Let's all right it. and then our last yeah our last topic this is a question from uh lewis or luis on instagram and thank you so much for reaching out i appreciate you um luis asks is lugia v-star going to be worth it and will it work in our format and uh for those who don't know what lugia does lugia v is a 220 hp colorless pokemon weak to lightning resistant to fighting for one colorless, it does uh, read the wins. You discard a card from your hand. If you do, draw three cards. Super busted in pre-release. Anyone who pulls that's going to be, you know, just stomping all day long. For four colorless, it does arrow dive for 130, and you discard a stadium in play. But that's not what we're here for. For the Lugia V-Star, 280 HP, also weak to lightning. For four colorless, it does storm dive for 220 damage, and you discard a stadium in play. And its V-Star power is an ability. During your turn, you may put up to two colorless Pokemon that don't have a rule box on them um, from your discard onto the bench. And that seems like a really busted ability because it doesn't end your turn or anything like that. But in the same set, we're getting Archops or Archeops, however you say that Pokemon's name. Archeops. (laughs) Yeah, and it's a stage 2 Pokemon, 150 HP, with the ability Primal Turbo. Once during your turn, you may search your deck for up to two special energy and attach them to one of your Pokemon, then shuffle your deck. It is also a colorless Pokemon, so it works incredibly well with Lugia V-Star's ability. Now, a lot of players overseas are obviously using the Lugia Archeops engine very efficiently to make a lot of other special energy attackers work very well, but is this going to make our format broken or is it going to make it just kind of meh i personally think it's going to make our format even more diverse and uh really fun if i'm being honest because there's a lot of cool sneaky plays um that you can do with that especially with the the v-star being uh an ability and not an actual attack so i mean you could really set something up to go just whenever um it I don't know. I, I think it'll bring back a lot of archetypes that have since died. I know I mentioned single strike earlier, maybe some rapid strike. Um, just because that Archeops is, is really good. Um, the fact that you can just attach two special energies um, from your deck without any cost and you can still attach from hand. And that I believe they stack too. So, I mean, you really could just... It, it's crazy. With that mixed with things like Thornton for other random basics and evolving, I mean, you could really make some crazy toolbox decks out there that just people don't expect, honestly. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of in the same camp with you. I think that Lugia definitely adds an extra dimensional layer to our already very diverse format. But I don't think Lugia V-Star is going to be your main attacker. I think you basically use it for its ability. You know, Sharon's carry it back into your hand if you really need to. Because you're going to be moving a lot of special energy around in decks like these. And you know what counters special energy, Justin? Duraladon counters special <laughs> energy. And when I was looking on paper at things that are going to rotate, uh, just because I'm always in the mindset of like, what's happening in the next set? What's happening in the next format? And at the end of this year, we are approaching our rotation phase. And Duraladon's core of its deck unless fighting energy rotates <laughs> which it won't obviously um it stays very very relevant it loses so few things that would make it um less playable but i think an increase in decks that play special energy would directly bump up the ability for duraladon to be successful and it's already a tried and true regional winning deck as is um, so you don't want to play the Lugia V-Star and its attack because it discards stadiums. And I think that running this with Path to the Peak is definitely going to make it usable in that same instance. What are your thoughts? What decks do you think in the future are going to counter Lugia? How is Lugia going to balance other decks in the format? And what would you play Lugia in if you got the cards today to play it? Another good question, honestly. Um, no, I, I, I will say I, I agree 100%. Lugia is not going to be your main attacker in these decks. Um, it's literally going to be used for that V-Star ability, and it's just going to bring more of those archetypes back like we talked about. Um, you literally just gave me a really good idea, honestly, with Duraladon. Um, I don't know why, and it it could work, but literally using... Uh, the Lugia Archaeops with Duraldon with the single strike energies because it technically is a single strike Pokemon. So now not only do you have a 220 shred, but you have more than that. You could have, if you put six energies, or not six energies, if you put uh, three of the single strike energies on there, you're doing 60 more, and then you put a choice belt, you're swinging for 310 with something that can't be hit with special energies. And in theory, there's going to be a lot of decks playing special energies so you don't get hit back. So, I mean... That honestly, in my mind right unless, now, and, sounds like a really unless good they're deck. playing the Duraladon Lugia Mirror. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to agree. And what's funny when I first read Archaeops, I was like, "Wow, it is literally single strike Houndor, but no damage counters. This is pretty sick." Uh, but then, am I in the camp of Archaeops being the best card and Lugia just streamlining Archaeops? I mean, like you the, could that... you could be. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could play. <laughs> mysterious or uh whatever the fossil mysterious fossil or fo whatever the fossil card is in a rare candy if you mm -hmm. wanted to and just skip the lugia yeah. all around but i just think that right there is counterproductive honestly this is just so much easier with the lugia but right um i think you'll see a big influx of lightning decks come in just for the pure sake of the archaeops has a lightning weakness lugia has the lightning weakness and maybe something like regilucky trying to capitalize on that weakness Absolutely, and Regieleki VMAX coming into the format the same time that Lugia is going to try to see its uh, you know reasonable amount of success feels like it creates a new triangle where I feel like Duraladon will kind of exist again. Lugia being that powerhouse that puts a bunch of special energy in play because, mind you, if you put two Archaeops in play and they're each accelerating two special energy at a time and you're putting four powerful colorless energy on lugia it hits the perfect numbers for everything in the format like don't get me wrong lugia can be a very very worthwhile attacker in that specific instance but does urshifu show up and start making things a little complicated for regieleki and start capitalizing on bench sitters like archaeops and freezing decks like lugia v-star it's you know i'm not saying that that's going to be like the new triangle but I just feel like there's a 50-50 chance that Lugia comes out of the gate being the best energy acceleration energy we've seen since Arceus. Or it gets immediately countered by Reggie, Lecky, and all the other lightning components like Vikavolt that can now hit an additional 30 damage on top of its 50 item lock. Or uh, Galarian Weezing <laughs> to lock out the Archaeops. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like th- things like that. Seems a little silly. You know, you get roped one time and then you got to find a way to either attack with Archaeops and waste some special energy because you have no special energy recycler in this format other than the urn of vitality that would cycle in those single strike energies you were talking about. We got a Roseanne's so backup. Really... <laughs> <laughs> you could throw, you could do Silene. Silene's perfect, <laughs> exactly. You just roll two heads and do the thing. So it, <laughs> it definitely seems like it's a big, big variable. Obviously on paper, Lugia sounds like it will be very, very powerful. And what I featured, and uh, the listeners back home can't really you know, hone in on what they're looking at here, but we'll describe it to the best of our abilities, is two decks that took top eights in 60-person um, tournaments in their own respective region. Obviously, it's not legal here, but these cards have been released and played in tournaments overseas in Japan. And one thing I'm seeing here is Single Strike Gengar VMAX. Uh, played with the uh, Lugia Archaeops engine using the 2-2 line of Bibarel for draw support. Running for Marnie, running for Serena to be able to either gust V Pokemon or um, draw five cards after you discard something from your hand. I can't, I can't remember what that card does off the top of my head. Same. But the the wide amount of special energy in this deck in the form of four powerful colorless energy, four single strike energy, two aurora energy, two hiding dark energy, one double color or uh, double turbo energy, and then a V guard energy. Um, but no path to the peak whatsoever. So this deck just gets eaten alive by Duraludon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but. Gengar VMAX is hitting insane numbers being able to accelerate two special energy out of the deck at a time with Archeops. So it's like, does this deck set up faster than Duraludon in that instance? Uh, yeah, I mean, that or maybe people just aren't even, you know, with this thinking about Duraludon, maybe they're seeing Gudra come in and they're in their mind it's been replaced, you know, or Gudra replaces Duraludon, and so they're like, oh, no one's going to be playing that. But, um, but yeah, no, you're right, Duraludon totally eats this deck alive. Even if it does get set up fast enough, I mean, you could always have two getting set up at the same time and you're good to go. Right. And then on the reverse side of the coin, there's a um, Lugia Archaeops deck that's running a 2-1 line of Crobat VMAX, I would imagine. A subtle line like that existing specifically for Mew VMAX, which could potentially take advantage of something along the lines of Lugia. Uh, but I'll cut to the chase. This one's playing two Hyper Potion and three Path to the Peak. And if you're deleting stadiums every time you attack with Lugia, is that useful? <laughs> is this good? Uh, or are you just basically saying, I'm going to attack a three prizer two times with four double or four the powerful colorless energy on myself, take six prizes before they get a chance to realistically establish a board state because I've now accelerated, you know, two special energy accelerating Pokemon into play and you don't get to say anything about it. Yeah, no, this deck looks counterproductive if you're asking me. I mean, (laughs) the fact that you're, you know, you're attaching energies just to use the hyper potions to heal and then you're playing the paths, but that shuts off your own Lugia ability or it's playing a Radiant Gardevoir. Um, to reduce 20, but if you're trying to stick the paths, then you're just going to turn that off anyways. It's kind of one of those things where um, it's like in Gudra, I play the Radiant Gardevoir and I don't play a path because it mm-hmm. sounds counterproductive in my opinion if the path sticks. I'm not taking less damage. And so, I don't know. It's just, yeah, this deck is interesting to say the least. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And it's just... The reason why I featured these two is because they both made top eight finishes, you know, and it's really, really early into what is considered their Silver Tempest format. But, you know, immediately they went to, I'm going to play something dark and something that can use special energies effectively. And I love seeing Gengar seeing that level of play, but there is a hard counter that exists already in the format. So it's going to, maybe take some north america spice to really hash out how silly this you know lugia can be but i can see it being a great 
additive to our format. Oh, agreed. And I think if you find something like a nice combo of these two decks, like maybe do the Gengar, but include the paths, include the hyper potions. Um, I think that could be a winning combo. But yeah, individually, I do think I could see, you know, this is the outside looking in, of course, but I do see inherent flaws with both. But yeah, we're still very early in the format. Yeah, and it obviously hasn't even released over here yet. So there's plenty of Lugia to be seen in the future. So, um, Luis, Luis, hopefully we answered your question, gave you some insight as to how we think Lugia is definitely going to shake out. I think to answer your question directly, will it work in our format? Absolutely, 100%. Yes, I highly doubt that these cards get bindered immediately. I don't think that it's going to see the same level of success that Mew did, where it just got good and stayed good for a long time. But I think that's the beauty of our format being so incredibly diverse right now. And that alt art's going to make make a bank for you. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. And alright, so I think we beat the Lugia conversation to death. Let's go ahead and make some predictions for Warsaw in Poland which is going to be in the Lost Origin format. Silver Tempest does release that week, but they will not be legal for this event. And I've got to say, it's going to be really, really hard to pick a good deck, so I kind of just want to throw you know, my, my hat back into the ring for Palkia and Teleon. Yeah, um, you've been sticking with that one. I definitely think uh, some form of Giratina build is going to win, whether it's going to be the Lost Box version or the Arceus version, uh, I don't know. But I think it's finally going to have its day. And I, I want to lean more towards the Arceus version. Just for the pure sake, it is a little more streamlined. Um, but I, I, that's going to be my prediction, is is a Giratina deck. Just for the pure sake, it's been played a handful of times now, and it's finally getting slowly figured out. It just hasn't had its opportunity for that win yet. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. The only thing I don't like about the Arceus version right now is the fact that it can't effectively use Thornton the way that it does in the Lost Box. And that's so sneaky, just to be able to sit there with 280 HP all game and, you know, leave something into the active that you don't think is going to be able to take a knockout. And then all of a sudden you flip into a Giratina and you hit him with the... Uh, the old delete V-Star power, and <laughs> I, I, that's, that, that play has snuck up on me too many times. Um, if you have any questions for us for you know the future podcast episodes, obviously after Warsaw, we're going to come back and talk to you about how Palkia did not win again after I predicted it winning. Um, <laughs> make sure you hit up our Twitter uh, at PCS underscore pod. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to hear your questions. And you, know, you could also hit Bruce and I up on instagram i'm katana tcg and he is pokebrews uh so definitely keep sending the feedback our way we'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for everybody who's already you know talked to us and said how the pcs podcast is doing well and how you know they enjoy the you know meta level insight that we're providing it definitely does mean a lot and this is exactly why we chose to do this yeah you you said it all i mean i i Thank you guys for allowing us to have this little outlet and the, uh, the, the positive reviews so far. So we appreciate that. Yep. And if you want to see any of the other content that Bruce and I put out, definitely check out Katana TCG on YouTube. And where can we find you, Justin? Uh, Instagram is going to be at PokeBruise. That's where I'm most active. On Twitter, again, I'm at TCG. Um, that'll be my two real forms of communication. Please feel free to hit me up any questions. Um, I'm always happy to answer, you know, whatever I can with what little knowledge I do have. So appreciate that. And then also, if you guys could support me, uh, Swift Energies or Swift Lifestyle Energy uh, is who sponsors me. Use code PokeBruce for 15% off your entire order. Um, any funds from that goes directly towards tournament entry fees, gas to get across Florida to go to all these things, stuff like that. Um, I actually have like a little Pokemon budget, so I don't have to take out of the family account and stuff like that. So anything helps. Um, and also their products are just great. Honestly, um, I use them pretty much daily. So. Absolutely. And they are delicious. I could definitely vouch for that. 
Um, and that about wraps it up. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. See you guys.